Mitchell, Mitch Kaplan. He is a Miami Beach native. He founded Books and Books in 1982 in Coral Beach, Florida. Coral Gables. Yes, which is where we are right now. We are sitting in the cafe, which is why your listeners are hearing all this ambient noise. Yeah, let's hope it's not too distracting. No, but don't get into the swing of it. This you is, should have a little This cocktail. is what we do. Have a cocktail yeah. or a coffee or yeah. whatever. We're in Coral Gables, Gables Florida. But we do have a store on Miami Beach. Yes, maybe that's where I'm confused. Anyway, it expanded into its current location where we're sitting now in 2000. Okay, so you put in about 20 years before expanding. It's housed in a Mediterranean-style building. The bookstore hosts more than 60 events a month. Let's just keep that as reference right there, including readings and live music. And a courtyard cafe, which is again where we are. I, t- I said this was going to take a while, okay? Because you're so accomplished. Really? It's fine. We're about maybe about 25% of the way through. Then you can talk. <laughs> and this courtyard cafe happens to be managed by a James Beard award winning chef. In 1989, Mitch opened his second location in Miami Beach, not Carl Gables with a Zagat-rated full-service restaurant. He opened another in 2005 that specializes in high-end art and design books. 2007, he went international to the Cayman Islands, and the store there hosts international author events. Another store in 2015, another in 2016 in Key West, managed by the famed young adult author Judy Bloom and her husband George. Another in 2017, and one even more recently than that, right? Yes, we opened one up in Coconut Grove, Florida, which is all part of Miami. All of our stores are mostly in Miami. Right, okay. And plus you got one at the airport. Yes. Okay. You have won Bookstore of the Year in 2015, Publishers Weekly. You were the former president of the American Booksellers Association. And in 2011, you won the prestigious Literarian Award for Outstanding Service in the, uh, to the American literary community. Now, finally, as if that isn't enough, with his partner, Paula Mazur, he formed Mazur and Kaplan Company to bring books to the screen, including the Guernsey Literary Potato Peel Pie Society. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. I, thank you. I know it's, You've done so it's much. a mouthful. But it's over, almost over 40 years, so it doesn't seem that much when you spread it out like that. Okay. But thank you for traveling all the way down to, to Coral Gables to see me. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Although it wasn't a pleasure being on 95, I-95. Was there traffic today? Ah, it's a pain in the ass. Well, you have a lot of... This is our height of our tourist season right yeah. now. And I'm a literary tourist. The, I know I'm the literary tourist. I am tourist. completely jealous of what it is you do. It's really great. It's what uh, what all of us would hope to do, which is travel around and meet literary people and get involved with the literary life that way. Well, you stayed put, and uh, you basically conquered Miami. Well, you know, it's interesting. I grew up here, so my background uh, goes even 
further back. I was born on Miami Beach, and I lived here all through high school, all through my schooling. And at a very unusual time, when it was the baby boom period, but Miami Beach was really a retirement center. In fact, there's a wonderful documentary that your listeners ought to look for called The Last Resort, which gives you a wonderful history of the famed South Beach, which has now become somewhat famous. But it, it'll give you a sense of how I grew up, which was where the median age was 68, with decaying buildings. And, and you partied hardy with those 68-year-olds? Uh, not really, actually. But, no. but really, there was no sense that Miami Beach would become the Miami Beach it became, you know, when I was growing up. In fact, to such an extent that I left Miami Beach and left Miami in South Florida, never thinking I'd come back. But I, I went out to University of Colorado to go to school in Boulder in the early 70s. You studied law? No, I studied English. Then. And uh, Colorado was a great place to be for me as an English major back then. Uh, there was something that was forming in the Naropa Institute that Allen Ginsberg had put together with uh, Rinpoche. And it was called the Jack Kerouac School for Disembodied Poetics. And so I was a 17-year-old kid in college, but I was also able to partake of all these things that the Naropa Institute was doing. So I could watch Ginsberg and Gregory Corso and Ann Waldman all give readings and lectures and talks. And I didn't really know who they were until I went out there and, and was introduced to them as a, as a young kid, basically. So Boulder turned out serendipitously to be a wonderful place for a kid from Miami Beach to be. I'd never seen snow, I'd never seen mountains, but it opened up the world of literature and books for me in a way that I might not have gotten anywhere else. Did they have Red Rocks out then? Uh, Red Rocks, then? yeah, Red Rocks was there, but... The, the, you know, the concert. Yeah, 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 but even better than Red Rocks was a place that I frequented called Tulagi's. It was right in Boulder, right on the hill. And for two years that I was there, they had a, they had a booker who came from Cambridge, Massachusetts. And this booker was brilliant. And I saw, I think over those two years, I saw every living blues figure that was around. I saw, you know, Lightning Hopkins, Brown, uh, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee, and B.B. King, and a small venue, no bigger than like for 200 people. Uh, and at that time, people like Jackson Brown were just coming through, and Bonnie Raitt, and Paul Butterfield. So my education was this very strange thing of seeing all these old beat poets and these incredible, you know, kind of master musicians at the same time. And it re I bring it up only because I think it really led me, it was buried deep in my psyche, to understand, it gave me the kind of producing gene that I now have in terms of wanting a place where I could put on events that were meaningful for people. And um, that place, Tulagi's and Boulder at the time, you know, I got to see early Tom Waits. And, you know, I mean, this was a very golden period from 72 just good to luck. about 70. It was complete luck. luck that I was there. Although the way I ended up there was a kind of literary way of ending up there. I was living in Miami Beach, kind of didn't know where I wanted to go to college. 
And it was the days before parents took you on college tours. Right. You know, it was the days in which I don't think my parents, even to this day, know where I went to school. <laughs> but I was... They're just happy you went to school. Yeah, I was in the tropics of Miami Beach, reading, uh, as most 15-year-olds do, Jack Kerouac, a book called The Dharma Bums. Dreadful, thinking dreadful about, writer. Dreadful. Well, I was reading The Dharma Bums but when for I was... a teenager... Oh, it was terrific yeah. for me. And I was reading the Dharma Bums, and as you know, there's the Gary Snyder character in it, who's sitting on a mountaintop watching fires and writing poetry. And it seemed so romantic to me at the time. And I'd never really seen mountains. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to a place where I can sit on the top of a mountain and <laughs> watch for fires. And a friend of mine stuck an application to the University of Colorado in front of my nose and all you had to do was sign your name, and I had the proper scores, I guess, which didn't need to be very high. And the next thing I know, I'm on a plane going to Boulder. And, and it you didn't was have to perfect. be that rich either. I mean, college no, is pretty cheap. college I'm back not, then was, yeah, was as an out-of-state out student, yeah. I was paying probably about $800 a semester Yeah. as an out-of-state student. No, it, there was not that inflation. But so, for me, my journey to become a bookseller and, you know, whatever it is I'm doing, started in those very early days of seeing great music, hearing great poetry and fiction readings, taking English classes from these kind of unusual professors who found their way to Boulder at the time. And it lodged in the back of my mind that there was an alternative way of living. Well, the, the idea of being able to support yourself doing something, something connected different. with this, right? Right. But yet, I wasn't completely confident, because when I graduated college, you mentioned law school, I did go to law school Thought for so, two yeah. years. And it wasn't until I was in law school that I realized I better do follow my passion, which was to be involved in the literary world somehow. And I thought maybe I'd be in publishing but then I kind of, you know, as I said, buried deep in my psyche was this idea of having a place that would be a gathering place for people. And the sense of community that a bookstore presented itself as a possibility of being that gathering place yeah. happened when I was in law school in Washington, D.C. There were some wonderful bookstores there. There was one called the Saville Bookstore. It's not there anymore. There was a, the original Olson's Bookshop in Georgetown. Didn't Larry was, McMurtry have a place? He had a used bookshop as well there. There was a just beginning a store that was still there now called Kramer Books and Afterwards. Yeah, I'm going the, for I'm going for breakfast there in about a week. Beautiful. It was yeah. the very I was there when they opened basically. It was the very first bookstore cafe I had ever really seen was there and it gave me the idea that marrying the two might be very feasible. So I left law school. And I said, okay, what am I going to do now? And yeah. I knew that I wanted to be connected with the literary world. So I said, you know, I want to open a bookshop. But I had no real, I'd never been involved in business, never been involved in, in that world. But you I, decided you wanted to come back to Miami. Well, I, I, I basically, I was in D.C. at law school. My family was living here, so I came back here. I see, yeah. And I needed to, to get to work. So with an English degree, I couldn't do much. But... The University of Miami had a program that allowed me to get a master's and teach high school at the same time. 
So what I did is while I was working part-time in a chain bookstore, I was teaching high school English for two and a half years. And that's how I stayed here. I didn't think I would still be here. And then it, uh, a place presented itself not far from where we're sitting right now. And I decided that I would open a bookstore. And I was at, I was probably 25 or 26, and I did it. And I opened a one-room, like a one-room schoolhouse. It was a little one-room bookshop that you could do back then. Okay, so what are some of the, the most important lessons you learned when you were 25? Well, I learned lessons because I made mistakes, you know, but I learned that, you know, the romance of having a bookstore needs to be tempered by the reality that it's a business. And so what I would have done differently is probably started with a little bit better of a business sensibility because it was all on-the-job training for me, the business aspect of it. So because, more specific than that? Well, I probably would have had a team together. You know, I would have had an accountant. I would have had a business manager. I would have tried all that sort of stuff, which I did not do. And instead, just opened on purely on passion. I mean, I used my instinct. Okay. As a buyer, I had no real. I mean, there was a so that worked right away. There was a kind of instinctual thing about buying books, and it turns out I knew how to sell books, and that was fine. So how do you sell books? And you need well, you know, a bookseller's knowledge has often been, it's often been likened to the Rio Grande, you know, fifty miles wide and a half an inch deep. So you have to really know a lot of books, and you have to kind of get a sense of what they're about. And then you have to know your customers. And there are different ways of finding out about your customers. And also tracking what's being purchased at your store helps you be a better buyer because you know what the community is reading. Yeah. And we've always been very community-based. You know, so there's been this mixture of bringing in books that I like, but at the same time presenting books that my customers might not know about and if they did know about it, they would want to read it. Based on the fact that they're reading something these other else. books. Yeah. Yeah. If you tell me something you've read, I could probably recommend some, something you've read and liked. I could probably recommend something else that you might like. Right. So there's a kind of art to it. It's not really a science. But when I talk about the business side, I'm not t necessarily talking about... I'm just talking about small the, the business with a, with a small b, the... Not the literary business, but business as a business, you know. Those are the kinds of things that, you know, I never really knew about until I was on the job and learning about it. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up at the time when in my school at Colorado there were like 5,000 English majors and 200 business majors. And now there's 10,000 business majors, and if there's 100 English majors, that's a lot. So we're in a whole different world now than... You know, I mean, I think when I look back, I approached what I do as one would approach anything that they were passionate about in creating. Like, if you were a painter, you were passionate about painting. So as a bookseller, I approached my bookselling as a passion as opposed to a business. And I had to learn and feather in the business aspect of it. And I learned that pretty, I, had to, I learned that lesson very quickly. So when you ask me what mistakes I made, that might be viewed as a mistake or something I've learned. Seems to me something you've just said a little bit earlier. This love of 
creating a, a space where people gather and uh, celebrate and communicate about literature and reading. Just the, the idea of being responsible for creating something that will allow real rich experiences for people in your community. You know, I, you've said it really beautifully. I mean, I, the idea for me, and I think maybe it's born out of growing up in Miami, which is a very car culture kind of place. There aren't a lot of meeting places here. So when I knew that I was going to live here, I wanted to create a place that I would like to be at and where I thought I could meet more people. I wanted to basically create my own world. And what guides me is this notion that I learned about later, which is the notion of the third place, the place after work, after home. Where do you go? You go to the third place. In England, it's the pub. It could be the pub, the coffee shop, the hair salon. It could be any of those places where people congregate. You know, they did a whole series of movies called Barbershop, right? So it's that kind of thing where people come together, talk about things, talk about ideas. Change the world. See friends, change the world, or yet just create bonds among people, you know? So that's what motivates me, is to be able to sit here and have a conversation with you. Or look around this courtyard and see a diversity of people who are doing one thing or another. Meeting for the first time, you know, families getting together, maybe on their way to a movie or going inside looking at a book together. That's the kind of thing that really gives me lots of pleasure. And I realize that about myself. You know, there is that kind of producer's high when you produce something and you say, but for me, this would not happen. You know, I thought one time in my life that I might want to write, but you know, I realized early on, fortunately, that I probably don't have the talent nor the patience to be a writer. And I realized that presenting events and presenting this kind of space and bringing people together assuages the same kind of urge that I thought I had as a writer. And that's what led me to want to do film as well. Yeah, we'll definitely get to that. Um, this, This idea that a human needs to create in order to be happy. My experience tells me that's very true. And you're creating this environment for others to, again, enrich in their souls. Yeah. It's really collaborative and bringing people together to all work together. It fulfills you. Very much. I mean, I I feel like one of the luckiest guys around. That I I found my passion very early and I was able to fulfill it and I was able to do something that was meaningful for the place that I grew up. Miami, you know, had a very dark period and it developed, you know, into a better place. And I had a front row seat at that 30, 40 year period watching Miami become a more world-class city as well. And at the same time being part of a larger tribe of booksellers and literary folk around the country and around the world during this slice of time. And look, it's not for everybody in terms of what I'm doing, but for the kind of person that I am, I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Got a bar in the new place, right? Well, there's a bar here. In the Performing Arts Center where we have a bookshop, we have a full bar. Right. So you can get 
a Manhattan or you know a tequila or anything like that. Here at in the or Carl Palermo. Gables store, I've, I've been drinking a lot of Palermo. Oh, you have yeah. good because there's grapefruits here, right? It is. Yeah, lots. And here you can get beer and wine in our location here and in Coconut Grove. Okay. It seems to me, you know, if I'm trying to get out of you what you do, because you're a bre- <laughs> you're a best practitioner. This cafe, restaurant, bar. Well, that's kind of a sideline. It's a sideline, but but it seems to. Well, it it works well within what we're doing. Right. But I'd say three of our bookstores are just bookstores, and they operate really well just as bookstores too. You know, I mean. um, And why do they do that? Because they're all they're gathering places. Just when you have a cafe, the. It's an extra jolt because a cafe gives people another reason to come to you. But, you know, the bookstore can also be that third place, that wonderful third place. James Lackington was a great best practitioner back in the 18th century in London. Probably the most successful bookseller, uh, certainly of his era. Uh, just want to ream off a few things. He had, he had a place called the... Uh, and you probably know this, the Temple of the Muses. It was gigantic. It's like a huge Barnes & Noble. Uh, he had an inventory of 500,000-plus books, and he sold 100,000-plus books annually. Some of the innovations that he introduced include encouraging browsing and lounging. That's great. That? Do you do that? Uh, of course we You do. have stuffed chairs? Well, they're not stuffed. Well, a couple of them are, but... You know, you can lounge in our cafes very easily. And in the stores that we don't have cafes, we have chairs, place for people to sit. You know, we used to have uh, kind of a tagline, books and books where browsers are always welcome, uh, which is one of our taglines. Another one is um, from Borges, a really great quote. I cannot sleep unless I'm surrounded by books. I saw that on a (laughs) t-shirt. Because Borges was asked once, you know, Borges, you're blind. How come you have such a library? And he said, well, I can't sleep unless I'm surrounded by books. We'll run through it quickly, uh, if I may, some of the other innovations that Lackington introduced. He ran a cash-only business. Ours is not cash-only. In fact, very few people use cash. But that allowed him to save because he got cash in. He was able to buy with cash, so he didn't have to pay interest on the stuff that you bought. Anything equivalent to that that you've done? I mean, industry Yeah, to make like, yourself successful. Well, one of the things that we've done is, and publishers have been very good about it, is trying to find interesting and unique ways of making sure that books stay in our stores. As you know, books are returnable for credit. You can... You get books in, and that's because you can't read everything that's coming in. So you're taking a chance on bringing something in. Unlike a, unlike clothes, where you can see a pair of jeans and you say, all right, I know I can sell this. Not everybody can read everything that they're carrying. So for publishers to encourage new authors, they basically give you their books on terms, but they let them be returnable. I've tried to take that one step further and because we carry such a large selection of art books and design books and all of that, I basically work with publishers and try to create a what I call the scan and pay model, 
which means that it belongs to them until I sell it, which allows me to keep many, many, many more books on the shelves without having to turn them back to the publisher for credit. So you've got a lot of space to keep all these books, have you? I do. I mean, I, I bring in things that I think I can sell, so hopefully the turnover is still there. But what's, uh, what's your return rate percentage? Oh God, that's, I I don't I can't even tell you exactly, but it's within the average return rate. Each store is different. Because I, that's one thing that James Dong did. He he got Waterstone's return rate from twenty five to three percent. That's good. Some people would say that's good. Some people would say that three percent isn't enough because it means that maybe you're losing sales by not carrying enough books. I'm not arguing with James Dong, but. The whole notion of turn of inventory is probably better than return rate. You know, how quickly you're turning your inventory has more to do with cash flow and freeing up cash and being able to pay your vendors and that sort of thing. So people look for turn rates anywhere between 3 and 4%. Ours is a little less, maybe, because we have a lot of books on consignment and we also we have a lot of expensive books. You know, usually like it takes in, longer to sell those. Well, not only longer, but you want you know, if you sell one fifty-dollar book, you know, you might have sold five paperbacks within that same period, but yet you're making the same amount of money. You make the same money on all the books, or some books more than others. You get a percent. It, it all depends on what you're buying it from the publisher for. On some books, you get a little bit more than others. You get a few more percentage points than others, depending on what they are, what they aren't, or if you're buying it on a special, often publishers will have special rates and special incentives, incentives and that sort of thing. Okay. Lackington bought remainders and sold them cheap at high volume. He was one of the first to do that. Others bought them and destroyed them in hopes of driving the prices up. And Lackington attracted way more buyers. Well, what that, what that tells me is that really what, what he's driving at and what's true, and it's why you go into bookstores now and you don't just see books in a lot of bookstores. You see a lot of non-book items. Some bookstores sell socks. Some bookstores sell jewelry. Some bookstores sell other kinds of things. In Canada, you have Indigo, which sells... It's really more of a lifestyle. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Lifestyle store. And that's because of margin. The margin in the book selling world is very small yeah. compared to what it might be in other places. And the other problem that we have in the bookstore world is the prices are printed on the book. And you wouldn't be very happy if I raised the price, said, no, it's not $26, it's $30. So really, what we have is we have an upper limit that we can sell something for. Even if our rents go up, if our wages go up, we're stuck at whatever that price is. And now, with the internet and with discounters, we're not even able to get that anymore. So the margins are squeezed. But when you're selling other things, like food or beer and wine or other items, you can play with the prices on those things and margin comes into play. And the same with remainders or sale books. When you see sale books, I can put any price I want on them. Yeah. So if I, buy, if I buy a book about Cuba 
and I buy a hundred of them at 98 cents each, but I'm in Miami and I know I can sell it for three dollars, well, my God, I'm making three times what I would make on a regular book. So remainders are a very important part of the business as well. And your friend Lackington saw that back, what, what years was he operating? Uh, 1850 to, so no, 1750 to 18. So he saw that in like the that. 18th century. Yeah? yeah, yeah. And he was probably a printer as well, because mm-hmm. lots oh, of... Oh, yes, he was a publisher. Yeah, yeah like, lots like of, many lo- of them Most are. booksellers were publishers back then. So his remainders even cost him less because they were the books that he was publishing. Yeah, in fact, one of the books that he published in partnership with a publisher was Frankenstein. Hallelujah. There you go. We all want our Frankenstein, right? So, do you stock lots of remainders or not? You do? We do. We used to have a bookstore that was primarily just remainders. I love the remainder section. We called it Books and Books and Bikes because it was a bookstore and a bike shop. I partnered with a friend of mine who had a bike shop, and half of the space were remainders, and half of it was bicycles. We were a little bit before our time. We were in an area of Miami that still hasn't quite developed yet. It was in the Wynwood area, but we were a little off the beaten track. He refused to haggle, so when, when he wrote the price on a book, that was it, and he had a, a sign on his shop that said the cheapest bookstore in the world. That really doesn't really apply here, does it? Do you like if I came in and said I want I want ten percent off that book? You could probably say sure. I could, depending. I mean, we have what we do is we try to encourage customers by giving them a little bit of a um, boost. If you buy a hundred dollars worth of books here at the bookstore, we give you the next ten dollars for free. So you're, in a sense, getting close to a 10% discount if you join our book club, which is free to join. So we try to encourage regular customers. We also give teacher discounts and that sort of thing. And and we have given quantity discounts, too. If you buy a 1,000 books, we'll give you a nice discount. But it's really not about price, to be honest with you. I think, you know, the stores that have a lot of trouble, you know, they emphasize price more than anything else, but nobody can really beat the price that you find on the internet generally. You've got to really express to your customers that there's a different value. That value is not always measured by price. That there's a value in the space that we've created. It's a there's value a value in the experience. In the experience. Right. Yeah. And unless you pay full price for something, you might not be able to get that experience. Yeah. And do you want that to disappear? Exactly. The whole idea is that, you know, people have to choose where and from whom they're buying things and understand that they're making a lifestyle choice when they do that. If all you do is buy online from Amazon, you're basically killing lots of small businesses and you're hurting towns and cities from having a vibrant community one way or another. And not only that, what you're doing is you're giving in completely to a consumerist world. No interaction, no human interaction. Yeah. The other thing we touched on, and this is Lackington, sheer size of his store. He made it a destination, like it was a tourist destination. An attraction. 
Well, so many of us try to do that, but no longer just with size, because as you know, the day of the superstore is kind of over with. Right it's but, not over, but well, it's it's getting it's over. You know, Toys R Us is out of business. Yeah. You know, think of these gigantic places, and there are very few left. You know, of any any retail sort because. The internet is bigger than any store, physical store, can possibly be. So it really now becomes a matter of selection and service, more so than size. Well, and also, it seems to me what you've done is you've kind of split split the stores up into like you've got six or seven of them in in Miami. So you've you've if you put them all together, it'd be a monster store. No, but you've, you, no, no. You our put, stores are still very. If you put all of our stores together, yeah. they are still about half the size of a typical Barnes & Noble. Our stores, our total square footage is probably about 10,000 square feet of all of our stores. Most of our other stores are about 1,500 to 2,500 square feet, so they're not terribly large. So, but you've got to have places for people to sit in those stuffed chairs, yeah, though. Yeah, they, they, do, they, they do, do, they do, they do. Size, you know, as we all know, size isn't everything. But again, I come back to what we've always traded on is selection, service, and ambiance. The ambiance of all of our stores are different, they're unique, they're not cookie cutter, and, and I think all great stores, you know, no matter what size they are, pay attention to those three legs of a stool. And the fourth leg, which now is part of what we do, but it's always been part of what we do, and that is a sense of community as well. So you want to create a sense of community in your stores, too. Nicely put. So Keats met his first publishers at the Temple of the Muses. So, you know, someone could be meeting their first publisher right here in this courtyard. Oh, we've had that, we've had that done. We have writers who've written in the cafe and go on to publish great books. And we actually have a literary press ourselves as well. Ah. It's called Books and Books Press. And we, uh, we've got a book coming out with Edwidge Danticat, another one with Mark Kurlansky, who wrote Cod and some other things. Yeah, it's a small, small... It's a small, small, tiny press. But I, got, I got the same ring. I like that ring. <laughs> so, yeah, so that happens. Tell me a little bit about the press then. What? How many books you published altogether? Well, we probably published, in this iteration of the press, about a dozen books. We are part of a larger, smaller press called Mango Publications, and they're distributed by Ingram Publisher Services. I'm not a partner with Mango, but I have an imprint within Mango. I see. The way it works is that I, uh, along with Mango, publish under the Books and Books Press imprint. You know, the Books and Books Press shares in some of the benefits that arise from publishing within that imprint. Yeah, so you just anticipated my next question about you being a publisher, and you are, but you also make movies. Yeah, what I what happened was, I've always loved film, and about 10, 11 years ago, the great editor, Susan Camel from Random House, who just died, unfortunately, but Susan handed me a book 
and said, she had, I had no idea I was going to do films, but she handed me a book, we were at a meeting, it was actually a typescript of a book that was going to be published about six months later, and said, how are we going to make this into a bestseller? And I read it on the plane from New York back to Miami, and I loved it. And I said, There's, it'll be a bestseller, there's no question about it. And then I said, I want to make it into a movie, but I had no idea how to make movies. And it was called the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peel Pie Society that went on to sell millions of copies. And um, I then called my sister, who was in the television business at the time, lived in L.A., and I said, Marcy, I want to make a movie, what do I do? So she turned me on to her best friend, who was a filmmaker, a woman named Paula Mazur. And Paula, I sent the book to Paula, she loved it as well. And uh, we optioned it, and uh, the author, Annie Barrows, is a wonderful person, and we became friends. And it took us about eight or nine years to get it made. And um, in the interim, we enjoyed each other so much, Paul and I, that we decided to start a company. And then we started optioning a number of other books as well for film. And then in the meanwhile, as we all know, in the last eight years, television became exploding yeah. with all the streaming Series services. Yeah. So um, we started looking for books that might be good for television as well. And we now have probably about 14 or 15 different books in different stages of development. We've already done two films. One was the Guernsey film, and the other one was called The Man Who Invented Christmas, which I think you would love because it's about 19th century England and about Charles Dickens and the publishing of A Christmas Carol and what it took for him to publish it. Was uh, it a Canadian director? It was, no, it was, not a, it was a Canadian writer. Beautiful script. And we also had Michael Dana do the music, the Canadian Michael Dana, who did Life of Pi and all of that. He did the music. It was a co-production with Canada and England and and, and um, Ireland, and Bleecker Street distributed here in the United States. And it's now available online. You can watch it in wherever you stream movies. And it's excellent. Christopher Plummer plays Scrooge, another Canadian. Jonathan Price is Dickens's father, and Dickens is played by a great young actor. Dan Stevens plays Dickens. And it's got about it's got a great cast. Simon Cowell's in it, you know, the, the Dickens Scholar. Uh, it's just a great, great film, and it really gives you an insight, a little bit into publishing and what that's all about as well. Yeah. Is that and is that one of your criteria? You want to kind of have it connected to the book? It's not really. I mean, it just so happens that it is. Right. The criterion is that it. The criterion, the major criterion, is that it must be from a book. So it's books into film or television. So we have two coming out this year, this year being 2020. Uh, we have one that was a really wonderful crossover young adult book called All the Bright Places by Jennifer Niven. Okay. And that's starring Elle Fanning. And that's Netflix purchased that one, or actually paid for that one. And uh, a marvelous young director named Brett Haley. And that one is coming out February 28th. And then we have another one based on a book by Larry Watson, a wonderful writer who wrote Montana in 1948. This is his book called Let Him Go. And this one, Let Him Go. Let him go. And it stars, this one stars um, Diane Lane and Kevin Costner. 
and it's really, really cool. We, we filmed it actually in, in Calgary, because it was, even though it takes place in Montana and North Dakota, because there's a great tax credit in Calgary. Canada is a great place for film and all of that. But actually, right before us, I think the crew had worked on The Revenant, right before uh, us. Yes, I get out. cold just thinking about that. Yeah, it was cold. It was That's cold, cold. When I was there. And so that'll be coming out August 21st, actually. And that'll be in theaters. Focus Features is the uh, studio we work with with that one. And then we've got a number of different projects. We have uh, Major Pettigrew's Last Stand by Helen Simonson. We have a wonderful TV series we're putting together on FX uh, with books by Jen Begin called Vacuum in the Dark and Pretend I'm Dead with a wonderful team that, we've, that will hopefully be a pilot soon and then go on to series. We also have, oh, just all kinds of things that my mind always yeah. goes blank. But it's a lot of fun. I'm sure, yeah. You are pretty creative, aren't you? Well, I know how, I think what I, I think my strength is, is knowing what I don't know and then developing teams of people can help me out doing what it is that I do want to do. I've always loved film. The producing of films is another aspect of bringing kind of art to people in a way. Yeah. Uh, even though I'm not the filmmaker itself. Creating help, another we universe. We can creatively bring it together. And I could never do it without Paula. You know, Paula is the one who does it full time. And, and I put in my two cents where, wherever it might be warranted. But I love being in collaboration. It's a really beautiful thing. When, when you collaborate with others. Little Women's doing well. Are you selling a lot of those? We are. But I also, the film is being shown right across the street from us here in the Gables if you want to see it tonight. It's being literally, there's a, we have an independent cinema right across the street, which is great that we have them there. It's neat that you're located yeah. right next yeah. door, too. And we do a lot of collaboration. I bet, yeah. So, it's, I saw it on Christmas Day. It's great. I'm hearing, uh, I'm hearing really good things about it. Because all these, you know, what's happening is there's a lot of, you know, there's, I just saw something on Apple TV that I'm not sure how I feel about it quite yet, but it's about Emily Dickinson. It's, have you heard about it? It's, uh, it's called Dickinson, and it, it's filmed as if it's in the 19th century, but all the dialogue and music is from the 21st century. Nice. So it's kind of an updated version of Emily Dickinson. And it's quite good. It, it, the one or two episodes I've seen so far. But I think the jury is still out on it. But you know, It'll help sell books, though, I guess. If you love the movie and, and you love, you know, you, you oh, fall yeah. in love with... This all works for, for books. There's a writer of a best-selling movie, like one of the biggest movies ever, who told me that he made very little money off the movie, but he made a lot of money because the book started selling again. Excellent. And that's kind of what happened. Right, right. When Guernsey came out, it became a bestseller again in the cities in Europe where it was shown and in Australia as well. I know Guernsey quite well. The Isle or the, the, the Isle? Isle? Oh, yeah, good. Yeah, I, when I was a little kid, I lived on the island of Sark right next door. Oh, you did? For about wow. a year. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Well, then, this is right up your alley. Do you think we've covered all of the secrets to your success? <laughs> well, we've had a nice conversation. We sure have. And I'll, that's... Let, I'll let you decide that. And uh, is, that, is that the thrust of it? Is like going inside? 
the thrust is to, to understand the book. The business. The, the book, book, the business, the physical object, uh, the content, uh, everything about it. That's the thrust. And I'm sure Dawn probably gave you much more, you know, the business side of stuff. But I don't You're giving know. me the heart. What's that? You're giving me the heart. Well, it's kind of where I come from. I mean, I could give you the business side. Yeah. But you don't want to. <laughs> it's a little less... I do, but but we've already we've already been at it for about an hour. I so think, I think we've talked about a lot. So. Good, good. Thank you for doing your research. That's a pleasure. You've talked about connecting with people. That's why I do this too. To, uh, I, I'm so happy to connect oh, with a fellow book lover. Hey, listen. Really. You know that you're doing this. You know, what you're doing is really important, actually, because, you know, when I was the head of the ABA, president, I tried, I thought it would be really great to start an archive of great bookstores because we've lost so many. Yeah. I mean, just knowing, you know, you going over you know, the Temple of Books, I mean, we've lost, you know, we lost David Schwartz in Milwaukee. We lost, I can go over the names, and, and, you know, Shaman Drum, Carl Port, and, who died in Ann Arbor. But there's no place where that memory is still there. They, they do, you know, the Ransom Center, have you ever been there in Austin? Uh-huh. Yeah, I have. Yeah, you know, they have all the author archives. You know, there. But nobody has bookstore. Imagine, you know, a place that has archives for bookstores. You know, I mean, that's a history that is going to be gone. It's, you know, I, we hate to think it will be, but it will be. Retail is going to be gone, yeah. as we know it. Well, human connection, that's not going to end. No, but it's going to be... I mean, I had a whole thing with a guy who was telling me about what's happening in virtual reality. scary as hell. But this is a young person's view of human connection. It's not going to exist as we understand. But this guy was painting a picture for me, and he was quite happy with it, of what human connection was like in the virtual world. And how, hey, you know, I'm connecting with you. But I'm not only able to connect with you, but I can connect with a thousand people from around the world, even though I'm not with you, you know. And he was like, for him, it was the highest thing that you could possibly imagine. But for you and uh, for you and me, we're very old school. That's not what I want out of life. Me neither. You give me what I want. Thank you. Well, it's a really, really lovely it's really a pleasure yeah. to see you. And uh, thanks for adding to the archive. No, it's really important. I can't wait to go online and make sure I start listening. I've been speaking with uh, Mitch Kaplan, who is the proprietor of Books and Books in the greater Miami area (laughs) and a really impressive entrepreneur. Thank you. It was a pleasure being with you. Thank you.